And our prayer tonight, Father, as we study and look into your word, is that you would call us to a deepening obedience and a trust in you. To live our lives in such a way, not that we could say, oh, look how righteous we are, but that we could say, look at what Jesus has done. Look at the grace of God poured out in my life. Expressing, witnessing to people what we were, but what you have brought us to be. May our lives shine forth as lights because of your spirit and because of what you've done and are doing in us. But Father, speak to us now your word and teach us that we can abide in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, verse 1. Now, O Israel, and Moses is speaking. Remember, this is that long, long farewell address of Moses. 34 chapters of him preaching and speaking to the children of Israel. And he says, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. We read about that in Numbers 25. That's where that story is. Verse 4, But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, "Hear all these," and who will um, hear these statutes and say, "Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people." For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep yourself diligently so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Now going back to that outline of the book of Deuteronomy as a reminder, the first four chapters Moses reviews the history The historical journey that Israel took from Egypt now up to the border of the promised land, he reviews it over three chapters, and actually the fourth chapter is an urging on the part of Moses that they keep the laws and the statutes that the Lord has given them. He urges them because in chapters 5 through 26, he goes into the law again. But this time, it's not just a telling of the law, it's a speaking of the relevance of the law to the people, what this really means to them, what it is for. Then in chapters 27 through 30, he will regard the future prophetically. Now, he'll do that throughout Deuteronomy. There will be prophetic comments and statements throughout, and we'll catch those as we go by. But especially chapters 27 through 30, he looks to the future and tells Israel what their future will be. And chapters 31 through 34 ends out the book with a requiem to Moses. Now, this again concludes the journey with a passionate plea. Moses, is, you can hear his urgency, his sense of, of, of listen up Israel, pay attention, please don't, don't miss these statutes, stick to them, cling to them. He urges the people. And these first nine verses that I've already read, I want to go into in some depth on Sunday. But I want you to listen again to specifically what Moses declares beginning in verse 6. He says, so keep and do... And the word them is added there. Keep and do. 
For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Gang, listen. Israel, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. That was the original call to the people of Israel to be a nation of priests. An entire nation, not just a tribe of priests, Levi, but as we talked about in some depth in Exodus, they were called as a nation to be a nation of priests to the whole world, a light to the nations. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he says, it is, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And you might say, well, that's sad. Because I guess it never really happened. Israel was never that light to the nations. Au contraire. It, was Israel ever truly a light to the nations? Now watch this, Second Chronicles chapter 9. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with difficult questions. She had a very large retinue with camels carrying spices and a large amount of gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was on her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from Solomon which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house which he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his ministers and their attire, his cupbearers and their attire, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, she was breathless. And then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe their reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told to me. You surpassed the report that I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. And then she says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. There had never been a spice like that which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. The servants of Hiram, the servants of Solomon who brought the gold from Ophir also brought algum trees and precious stones and from the algum trees the king made steps for the house of the Lord for the king's palace and lyres and harps for the singers and none of like that none like that was ever seen before in the land of Judah. The queen of Sheba in a different country was blown away by the wealth and the wisdom and the righteousness and the judgment that was going on in Solomon's kingdom. That was the height of Israel's glory. And Israel's glory was known in the world. And they were, at that point, somewhat of a light to the nations. And you might say, okay, okay, maybe physically they were powerful and, and impressive in that one day and age. But were they really the light of the gospel to the nations? I mean, that's what we're really talking about, isn't it? Were they really God's light? Did they really shine forth? Did the gospel shine through the Jews? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now turn over to Romans 11 for a moment. Romans chapter 11. 
in verse 7. Romans 11, 7. Paul is talking about this interesting connection of Israel and, and how they were called to be a light, but how they denied that call, and God turned to another group of people to be a light, but He hasn't forgotten Israel. What then, Paul says, verse 7, what Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. And let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, Paul says, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So the light of the nations, Israel was in a way a light to the nations. Through them, by them, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And by the way, that verse in Isaiah 49, verse 6, which I'll read to you again, saying, is, is, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The light of the nations is Jesus Christ. The light is Jesus. And Jesus coming through Israel became that light to the nations. And Israel has a a fantastic and wonderful connection to that. By their sin, by their rebellion, Paul says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But then it comes right back around to the Jews because the salvation of the Gentiles is to make the Jews jealous. And in making them jealous, ultimately, God will save. God will save Israel. Verse 18 tells us then, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Paul tells us this wonderful truth. That God raises up a nation, Israel, to be a light to the nations. They rebel against it. But through that nation that was supposed to be a light, he brings the light, Jesus Christ. Once the light reaches the Gentiles... Now that same light shining back on the Jews makes them jealous and ultimately they will become saved in the same way. His plan is amazing. In fact, so wonderful is it that at the end of the chapter, Paul goes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is just completely blown away by the fact that God has brought His light to the nations. But understand that the Lord first invited Israel to be that light. To be the light to the nations. To back that up just a little bit more, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke the following words. Matthew 5.14, He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Who is Jesus talking to there? Jews. Not the church. We read that and go, oh, that's us. We're the light of the world. Jesus was talking to Jews. Now, we can co-opt that, certainly. And it does apply to the church, absolutely. We are a light. We are not supposed to be a hidden light. We're not just supposed to be that light hidden under the bushel. No, we're supposed to be the light to the world. But Jesus was talking to Israel, that original promised light. 
And Moses says, Israel, you've been given God's word and his wisdom so that people will see how different it is with him. The whole idea was that the people could see Israel and go, wow, what a different, unique nation. How wonderful are they? Look at their wisdom. Where must that come from? It must come from God. And through that, they could glorify God. And this method, and the reason I'm telling you all this, this method of a people near to God being so different that their very lives are a witness is the exact method the Lord declares for the church today. That's what He wants for us. Lives that are so unique and so different. This, by the way, is why we pursue righteousness. Now understand this. We don't pursue righteousness and holiness so that we can earn our salvation or attain it. We've talked about that. I think we're very clear on that fact. It is grace that saves us, not our righteousness. So why pursue righteousness at all? Because in the pursuit of righteousness, in the nurturing and the maturing of holiness in our lives by the Holy Spirit, guess what happens? People see that. It becomes a witness. It becomes a light. You come here on a Wednesday night and you open up the Bible and you study or you worship and you spend time with other believers and we fellowship. And yes, it is about growing ourselves. And yes, it's about getting closer to the Lord. But it's also about walking out that door with a glow of the Holy Spirit that other people can't understand. So they look at you and they say, what is it? I want what you've got. Andrew was just sharing with me at breakfast this morning about a young man who's, who's been coming and involved with the men's group. And he was talking to him just this last week. And he brought a friend with him who, I guess was on Tuesday night, the first time he brought this friend. And, and the friend was just kind of wide-eyed the whole time. But he told Andrew, I just want what you guys have. That's the deal. That's why we're in the Word. That's why we gather. That's, that's what God's doing in growing us in righteousness because, hey, it's not because we're righteous. It's not because we've achieved something. But His Holy Spirit working is an amazing testimony. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. How's that for a lineup? You're excluded, you're strangers, you got no hope, and you're without God. That's where we came from. That's our heritage. But, Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are now a holy nation. Brought near. In the same way that that Moses says, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is? Whenever we call on Him, same thing. That's the deal. That's where we are. A holy nation so near to God that the moment we call, He's there. In fact, if someone prayed tonight, He's there before we call. He's answering prayers right and left before we even speak them. How great is His sovereignty, His grace, His love. Would you just... Just stop tonight and consider how blessed you are just to be in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful? You are in Christ Jesus. And that life in Christ should in and of itself just be a drawing factor to non-Christians throughout these islands. The best evangelistic program is a life lived in Christ. It's not learning all the right things to say. It's not having a, a sheet that you go through so you know how to you know, trip someone into believing. It's just living your life in Jesus. Outspokenly, boldly, 
taking the word wherever you go. Well, verse 9 goes on and says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Moses warns, he says, Hey, you're a great nation with a near God, but take heed. Hang on to these things that you've been taught. We were talking about this Sunday night at the end of the Revelation study. That at the beginning of the study, of the beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 1 verse 3, we're told that blessed is the person who, who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. It's the only book in the entire Bible that comes with a blessing. It comes along with, no other book does this. Revelation does. We've just finished that and tapes and CDs CDs anywhere are going to be available and and ready for you to pick up if you want to get those. But at the end, the blessing is repeated. Listen to how it's said the second time. Jesus says, Behold, this is Revelation 22, verse 7, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. It's different. Still a restatement of the blessing. But the first time around, we're told, Blessed is the person who reads and hears and heeds. Then at the end of the book, we're just told, blessed is the person who heeds. Why? Because you've already read and heard it. So now heed it. You know what the will of the Lord is, so do it. Don't keep going back and back and back to reading and hearing. And then reading and hearing is good, but heed the word. Live out the word. One of the best ways to heed the word, gang, is to teach the word. And I'm going to tell you something that might shock you here, but every single one of us are called to be teachers. Every one of us. If you are in Christ, you are called to be a teacher. Oh, come on. Now, Jim, Jim embraces that. I embrace that. But I'll tell you what, we fool ourselves when we think there are only certain people in the kingdom who are supposed to be the teachers. Now, granted, granted there are people who have the gift of teaching. People that God specifically selects to give the gift of teaching to. But that doesn't let the rest of us off the hook. It doesn't mean that we can just go, okay, well, I'll just leave it to Jim or to Pastor Rick or someone else. They can teach, and I'll just sit back and I'll be the feeder. The reality is, gang, if you're in Christ, you are called to teach. Now listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter. It will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. I love the descriptiveness of the Bible. And then he says this, listen, the Lord's bondservant, this would apply to every one of us, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, must be able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now I'm not saying you have to get up on a Wednesday night and teach the Bible. I'm not saying that you have to host a small group and be the teacher. But what I am saying, gang, is the bondservant of the Lord is called to teach. Someone. Anyone. As he says in verse 9, make known to your sons and your grandsons what you know. That's teaching. Make known to those in your family. Parents, it is your responsibility, not the Christian school's responsibility or the church's responsibility or somebody else's responsibility to teach your children. It's yours. Teach them. 
It is your responsibility, wives, teach your husbands. Husbands, teach your wives. Friends, teach each other. Make sure everyone knows and nobody misses it. Verse 10 says, Remember the day, Moses says, you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words. Why? So they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Teach their children. We're all called to be teachers. And here's a thought. Jesus was speaking to the crowds. Matthew chapter 12 verse 46. And behold his mothers and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. The Bible tells us someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and he said, Who are my mothers? Or who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Listen, Jesus' family was his disciples. But your disciples are your family. Jesus' family was his disciples. He came to disciple and save the world, but he has placed us all in a position where our teaching can start first and foremost right at home with our families, with those closest to us. Teach them. Teach them the word. Teach them to pray. Be the light. Your ministry begins at home and spreads out from there. Now, Moses draws the people back to Sinai and he says in verse 11, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Verse 13, So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. This is where the phrase written in stone comes from. It's written in stone. It's absolute. No, I promise you, it's written in stone. That's where it comes from, the Ten Commandments. And they're not the ten suggestions written on an Etch-a-Sketch. Okay? You know the etch You need to shake it up and it's gone. Ten Commandments written in stone. Because they were to last. They were to be observed. They were to be understood. Verse 14, The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire. So that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure. The, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to the heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. It's interesting because back in verse 15, Moses said, you heard the word, but you didn't see any form. You heard the spoken word, it got into your ears, in fact it scared them to death, but you didn't see any form. Take note of that, Israel. Don't make any images of God. And because of that, historically and archaeologically, the Jewish people are the only people in history that don't have artwork. At least in the past. Archaeological digs in Israel yield very little, if no, artwork of Jewish origin. They don't have it. 
Because they were told not to make any graven images. Now, consider this about Israel. As a nation of people, they are less than one half of one percent of all the people in the world. Yet they've won over 25% of the Nobel Prizes. The Jews. Some of the greatest scientific minds of our era have been Jewish. Jonas Salt, Alfred Einstein, Enrico Fermi, Robert Oppenheimer, on and on. Amazing minds among the Jewish people. Incredible scientific discoveries. Great writers and authors. And what about comedy? I was listing out just some Jewish comedians. Just here are a few names. From Sid Caesar to Jerry Seinfeld, the Three Stooges, the Marx Brothers, Danny Kay, Woody Allen, Billy Crystal, Jerry Lewis, George Burns, Gary Shandling, Joan Rivers, Ben Stiller, on and on and on. And you can come up with a list of over 150 Jewish comedians in our contemporary world, either alive now or recently alive. What is it about them? It's not just that their humor has gotten them through the last 3,500 years. But there's something amazing about the Jewish people, and yet when it comes to art, nothing. They fall flat. By comparison, historically, you just don't see a lot of Jewish names in the art world. Even today, now, modern Judaica has sprung up. Jewish art forms based on the menorah and the Star of David and some other things. In fact, if you go to Israel, you can buy different artistic renderings. In fact, they've got all kinds of menorahs. It's, it's very interesting what they do with that. But it comes from a secular basis. And historically, Judaism was not that way. They had no forms. How about Christian art? How about Christian images? How are we doing? (laughs) We got a lot of forms and images, don't we? Churches and spires and steeples and stained glass and carved images of every sort. And Moses, Moses would have passed out if he had walked in an average church of today looking at all the images that are supposed to represent. And God said, you know what? Don't make an image to represent because you can't represent me. I am so far beyond anything that you can even imagine. So don't even try. God, gang, wants to be known in our hearts, not by our eyeballs. He wants to be seen in relationship. A Scottish commentator once wrote, and I love this, men never paint a picture of Jesus until they have lost the presence of Him in their hearts. And Jesus said in John 4.24 that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We need Jesus in our hearts, not carved in the front of a church, not put into stained glass, not drawn up on a t-shirt, not on canvas. We need Jesus in our hearts. Verse 14, where were we? Going on. Verse uh, 20, 20 going on. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God, listen to this, the Lord your God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Now that's a great verse. But listen, I was asked a great question just this last week. The Bible says... God is love. The Bible says love is not jealous. The Bible says God is jealous. 
How can this be? Now process this with me for a moment because that, that you know, was asked of me this last week and, and I kind of just went, okay, it's one, of the, it's, it's one of those word games and there are a lot of them, especially when people are trying to disprove the Bible. But think about this. Comparing human jealousy and holy jealousy is like comparing a wormy apple to a perfect sun-ripened Florida orange. Okay? Apples and oranges. Bad apples, good oranges. You can't even compare. We try and think of God on a human plane. He's not on a human plane. Godly jealousy and human jealousy are two absolutely different things. Why? Because jealousy in man's hands is not love. When I'm jealous, I want for me. I want to benefit for myself. When God's jealous, it's because He wants for you. He is jealous for you. Why? So that He can save you and keep you from the fires of hell in all eternity. That is godly, holy jealousy. That is a righteous jealousy. It's born out of true love, whereas man's jealousy is not born out of any love. Man's jealousy is, means, it means the temporary satisfaction of the one who's jealous. God's jealousy means the eternal satisfaction of the beloved. Total difference there. God is love and God is jealous because His love demands that He not want to lose a single one of us. And so there is a holiness a purity to his jealousy completely different than the kind of jealousy we would have as human beings. When Paul wrote, love is not jealous, he's talking about love in a human sense. That a human being loving will not show jealousy because it's selfish. But godly jealousy is not selfishness. It's a fiery, crucifixion, proven, passionate jealousy to bring us into the place of his love. Now going on, verse 25 says, When you become the father of children, and children's children, and have remained long in the land, and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed." This is fascinating to me. Now we already went over this section here in our Prophecy Update and and looked at Israel's history. But I want you to see something here because it just points to the internal evidence of the infallibility of the Bible. I was asked by a friend just this last week. A friend of mine came up to visit from Seattle. And we were sitting talking in the living room and Cheryl was in the other room and and, and out of the blue he said, Rick, and he's a Christian. He's a good, good friend. In fact, we served in youth ministry together a long time ago. He said, Rick, do you still believe the Bible's infallible? And it threw me. I said, well, yeah. Of course I believe the Bible's infallible. Well, you, you really do. I mean, you don't think that maybe over time it's gotten a little bit corrupted? You don't think that maybe some things are just mistranslated? But generically, maybe it's good that there are some mistranslations. And I said, you know what? I believe, and you may have heard me say before, I believe that every word of every verse of every paragraph, of every page, of every chapter, of every book throughout the Bible is God-breathed, God-inspired. I believe it is infallible. Why do you believe that? Well, for a couple of reasons. Understand, first of all, that I believe in a God who is capable to keep His Word. I don't you know, if, if, if God is God, if He is all-powerful and awesome... Have we forgotten for a moment that maybe God gave us His Word and then we start to corrupt it and He goes, Oh no, it's out of my control now. <laughs> oh no, a thousand years went by and it's corrupt. What do I do? He's God. He has the authority, the ability, and the capacity to keep His Word. And I believe He absolutely has. And I'll tell you now the second reason why I believe that. 
Not only is God capable of keeping His Word, but God's Word itself internally proves itself to be. Now we can get into history and and archaeology and, and geological finds, and we can get into all those external proofs, but there are internal proofs of the veracity of Scripture right here, and one of them I want to show you right now to blow your mind. Verse 25, there's a little phrase, Have remained long. Your Bible may translate it slightly differently, but it's a single Hebrew word, have remained long. The word in Hebrew, and you might want to mark this in your margins just to come back to and remember, this one will blow someone away. Someone who comes up to you and goes, well, how do you, why do you believe the Bible, blah, 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 blah. And you say, well, let me just show you one thing. One interesting little thing here. Verse 25, the word have remained long is yashen. It's Y-A-S-H-E-N. If you want to just kind of write it out in English form, Yashain is the word. Now, the thing you need to understand, and we've talked about before, Hebrew words, in the same way as Greek words, also have numerical value to them. Okay? They're a numbering system as well as an alphabet. So each one of the Hebrew words can have a numerical value if you add up what each of the letters uh, actually add up to. The numerical value of the phrase have remained long. Moses says when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land. The numerical value is 582. Big deal. It is a big deal. How long did Israel remain in the land before they were driven out the first time? 582 years. Intrinsic, internal proof of the veracity of Scripture. When you have remained long, God does this stuff all over the Bible. And it's so fun to find it. And I know that when we do discover it, when we pick out one of these little treasures, God goes, oh good, they found it. Did you see that? They found it. I knew they would eventually. They're a little slow, but I knew they'd find it. (laughs) And every time I run across something like this, I just get a thrill. Because I know someone's going to come up and say, well, why do you believe the Bible's true? Let me give you just one little thing. Have remained long, it's 582, that's how long they were in the land. What a coincidence. And the Bible is full of that kind of internal proof. Now, by the way, in these verses from verse 27 through verse 30, I'll go ahead and read this to you. It speaks, this is the first mention in Scripture, and first mentions are very important in the Bible. First time anything is mentioned, you can learn a lot from that. It's the first mention in Scripture of the tribulation for the Jewish people. That seven-year period that is promised to come at the end of the last days for the Jewish people, a time after the church is caught up. Verse 27 says, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be less few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. We talked about that a couple weeks back. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. Watch this, verse 30. When you are in distress... And all these things have come upon you. In the latter days, Yom Akharim, the last days literally, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. It's a great prophecy. It speaks of the tribulation when the Jews will return to the Lord. And they will return through Jesus Christ. They will finally accept Jesus is the Messiah that they missed the first time. Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10 God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And you might say, that's kind of weird English there. 
Because the verse starts out saying they will look on me whom they have pierced. And then it says and they will mourn for him as someone mourns for an only son. Well is it me or is it him? Yes. (laughs) Because God is Jesus and Jesus is God. But this is what happens in that time of tribulation, that time called Jacob's trouble. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 says it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord. The two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And then Paul tells us, all Israel, all Israel will be saved. And in case you've missed this, the way that works out is all Israel who survives, who is alive at the time, all of that third, two-thirds of Israel, gang, during the tribulation, will perish. One-third will survive. And all of that one-third, every single person among the third that survives, will be saved, will turn to Jesus, will give their lives over to the Lord. It's prophecy, gang, and it will happen. How do we know it's going to happen? Because the Lord has given us His Word. And it will happen. Going on, verse 31, For the Lord your God, He's a compassionate God. That's, by the way, why He's a jealous God, because He's a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. Indeed, ask now, concerning the former days, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Verse 33, Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard and survived? Or has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation? By trials, by signs and wonders and war, and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? The answer is no! This has never happened before. It's never happened since. No other nation in all of history has the history of Israel. Israel is another intrinsic, internal proof of the Scriptures. Because nothing like this has ever happened. And you can look all the halls, search all the halls of history, and you will never find the kind of interplay of a nation that God has with Israel. You'll never find the miraculous in a nation, an entire nation of people pulled out of another nation and given their own land. And then after almost 2,000 years of being without that land, of being dispersed all over the world, that nation again, born again, a second time in 1948, you will not find it in all of history. Only with Israel. It is absolutely unique. And why is it unique? Again, to reveal the heart and the glory of God. That's why he did it. That we, even tonight, would sit here and look at the stories of Israel and go, Wow! God, you are awesome! You are magnificent! Praise you! All glory and power and honor goes to the Lord. And again, it's what Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And in verse 35 it tells us, To you it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God. There is no other. 
There is no other beside him. Verse 36, out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on the earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers. Therefore, he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other. You shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I am giving to you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And gang, listen. Because this is the foundation, the foundation of our obedience. It's faith. It's faith in the Lord. Faith in what He's done for you. Faith in what He will do for you. Faith in what He says. Faith in His Word. Remember that Deuteronomy, which means second law, is not simply a second law. Remember the real title of this book is L.A. Hadabarim, which simply means words, words, words. And Moses goes through in this whole chapter and his whole point is remember what God's done. Cling to the words he's given you. Be obedient. Have faith in him and let your obedience flow out of that faith. He urges the people, be obedient to the Lord. It's interesting, there's a story that was told about in the Jewish Mishnah, a collection of, of Jewish writings, related to this verse of a certain Persian king Persian king by the name of Artaban who sent to Rabbi Yehuda in Jerusalem a large and vastly expensive pearl as a gift. It's a beautiful pearl. This king of Persia sent it on over and Rabbi Yehuda in return sent this king Artaban a copy of Deuteronomy. And at first the king was a little miffed. He was offended. He sent word saying, I sent you a priceless pearl and you sent me a scroll? I send you a valuable gift you send me a book? What's the deal? Well, Rabbi Yehuda wrote back, sent an emissary to Artaban with the following message. He said, What you sent me requires that I have guards to protect it. What I have sent you will guard and protect you. That's awesome. You give me a pearl. Now I've got to hire someone to keep an eye on it. I've given you the word which will keep an eye on you and guard you and protect you and keep you if you keep His Word. That's what the Word of God does. It makes things go well with you. It keeps it protects. Now verses 41 through 40 through 43 here is just a restatement of Numbers 35 where Moses sets apart cities for cities of refuge. Uh, three cities across the Jordan to the east in case a manslayer might flee there. And the cities are in verse 43, Bezer and Ramoth and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. In verse 44, going on and ending here, it says, This is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which Moses spoke to the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt, out across the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out from Egypt. They took possession of his land, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, 
the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan in the east, from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Sihon, that is Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Dang, truly there has been no other nation like Israel. This last little section, these verses we've just read, basically are, in, are an introduction to the next and broadest section of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is saying, this is the law. Pay attention to it. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the ordinances. Listen to them. They will guard you. They will keep you. Motivation for us to be in the Word, it will guard you. It will keep you. It will bring to mind the things that need to be brought to mind. God led the people of, Egypt, of, of Israel out of Egypt and into promise, and He gave them His Word, which is invaluable. A Jewish person was asked the question, and I may have shared this with you recently, but asked the question, how do you feel about the fact that Israel is the only nation in the entire Middle East that has no oil? And his response was, well, God gave the Arabs the oil, He gave us His Word. Which would you rather have? Let me remind you as we finish tonight, gang, that like Israel before you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are a light for the nations. Once we were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray even now, Lord, that you will begin to prepare our hearts as we dive in next week to the next chapter and to the section of the relevance and the wonder of your word and your ordinances and your laws and your statutes. May we, Father, not search through them to, um, oh, Father, to, to find our own self-righteousness. Lord, keep legalism far from us as we go through this law. But help us to understand that the law points us to Jesus. Help us to look to Him. And Father, we pray that Your Word would keep our hearts and guard us until the day when You call us home. In Jesus' name, Amen.